Let us pray. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for the incarnation of God, all that entails for those that are in Christ Jesus. Father, we praise you for who you are. Lord, despite all hurdles, all struggles, Lord, you remain sovereign. You remain king of all glory. Father, we pray tonight as we come, Lord, and meet together, you'll be with those that are sick and away from us. We think of John and Jane Didier, Lord, that you would overshadow them. Lord, continue to raise them up. Father, we pray for the preaching of the word, God, that you would be what teaches us the truth of these words by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you would be what brings us near to you and not our own intellect. Father, we pray that you will be with us now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn your Bibles tonight to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll look at verses 1 through 3. As you're turning there, I will read these verses and then we'll look at them directly. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostilities by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So as we look tonight, maybe not the traditional incarnation passage, and uh, given the opportunity to preach, I was thinking what best helps us draw near. As I've been looking at this passage, this Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and Romans 12, 1 and 2 has been some meditation for me lately. But as we look at this idea of the Christian marathon or setting the race, I thought many times I think out sort of my introduction, I thought, how can I introduce something talking about running uh, with the shape that I'm in? But at one time, believe it or not, I ran three miles every morning. Uh, did that not for any athletic competition, just found it to be something that helped me get the morning going and get started. So I know a small amount about running. But you know, when we think about a marathon, we think these, uh, we see people like Bambi Petty, she goes into St. Jude and runs and it's a length of time. And Jordan Thomas would never tell this on himself, but one time Jordan Thomas showed up at the St. Jude Marathon and he'd been there, no training, just went to see and just decided before it started, he just run the half marathon with them and completed it and did fairly well, you know, and some people are built for speed and some of us are just built, you know. But that idea of understanding, looking at this idea that there's a race to run, there's, first we see charting the course. He said, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We could spend an entire time, and I know someone's preached lately and I can't remember who and touched on this, but just think about that therefore for everything that's before us. In Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith lists all those Old Testament names that have endured and been given grace by God to make it through. And Moses and Abraham and David, Noah, others. But we also have present day witnesses Think about William Carey, the missionary. Think about Charles Spurgeon and 
all that he's written and how helpful that is to us. We think about George Mueller, who by faith continued to trust the Lord for everything that came into the orphanage and saw those prayers miraculously answered in many cases. Think about one that we love here and love to read here, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I don't know if there's more of his sermons than are on the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust, but I've listened to everyone on there and been helped by them every time. We're also thinking that we're encouraged with the likes of Samuel Rutherford and Martin Luther and John Flavel, John Edwards, and we could just go on with those that God has used to write and to live out, David Brainer, in a way that we have this great cloud of witnesses that give us more even than Paul did at the time. God's always using his people as an example. He's probably using you right now in ways that you don't know about if you're his people. Living out Christ before others. But he goes on to write there, the author of Hebrews, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The phrase, the word lay aside is one word in the Greek, to cease doing what one is accustomed to doing. These things that are just there naturally, daily. It talks about the word actually means to cease, to stop. Makes me think of Psalms 46.10, which tells us to cease striving and know that I'm God. So the author here is writing, talking about we have this great cloud of witnesses, so let's, because we have them, because we have this example surrounding us, then let us lay aside. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says this, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you were renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and in the truth. See this idea of laying aside the old self, laying aside the things that do not lead us into holiness. John Owen states this in his commentary in the book of Hebrews, this laying aside, or this laying them aside, includes a willingness, a readiness, a resolution to part with them cheerfully for the sake of Christ and the gospel if called thereunto. To put them aside cheerfully, willingly. So we see this idea of laying these things aside, but what are we laying aside? He says, lay aside every encumbrance. The word in the New King James in the ESV is called weight, laying aside every weight. What does that mean from the original language? That which serves to hinder or prevent someone from doing something, an impediment, a burden. We look at this idea of laying aside weights. We mentioned running earlier. Brandon Beck runs, many of you know that. Brandon Beck's built to run. So when Brandon first moved here, we befriended each other and we, we began to meet like on Friday mornings just to read through books and do things. And Brandon asked me to come work out with him. I said, I don't know, Brandon. And he said, well, let's go up here to the bike trail and run. I said, well, we can go to the bike trail and you can run and I will walk. So we did that for several weeks on end. And then Brandon finally convinced me, just run a little ways. If you've been on the bike trail, there's a starting point up by downtown and then there's an ending point there at the playground or that little exercise thing that they built and Brandon convinced me to run to there and I ran to there 
best I could in my 60s. When I got there, I'm glad Brandon was a nurse because I had to lay down. And, and I'm not saying that to be humorous. It was just too much for me to be running, keeping up with him. So I told Brandon, I said, I think I'll walk. So we're going to meet the next day and then we're going to exercise again. And the next day, Brandon decides he comes and he pulls something out of the trunk of his car and he said, here, put this on. I said, well, what is it? He said, it's a weighted vest. I said, you hate me. You weren't successful in killing me yesterday with running. Today, you're going to put a 30-pound vest on me. And he put that vest on me, and I, and I said, I would just walk, Brandon, with this vest on. So I walked several times with that vest on, but, you know, the greatest part of that weighted vest was taking it off. Because after you've walked all the way down the bike trail and back quite a ways, and you take off, it makes me think of that, this laying aside these weights, this extra heaviness in our life. One of the things about, are these things sin? Is he talking about sin? Because he's fixing to say also the sin which so easily entangles us. But I believe these encumbrances can lead to sin. I believe they're idols in our lives. I believe they're things that we've got to put away so that we can pursue Christ. They're hard to see sometimes. In your own personal life, these encumbrances, they're, they're there daily. They're just something that's part of our normal routine. The only way we're ever going to see these it's through the word in prayer, and it's not with our own eyes of examining ourselves. It's if the Holy Spirit of God helps us, is our eyes, to see what we've got that's entangling us. Now, there's some on the surface we know. If you're watching 12 hours of TV a day, that's a given, you know. You already know that's the put away. Because you're not in the word 12 hours a day if you're watching 12 hours worth of TV. But there's other things there that we mean good by doing. Maybe we're helping others. You know, maybe we're at our job and we want to do a good job. I consider myself a reformed workaholic. For many of you didn't know me back before I was a believer. But I would go in at 7.30 in the morning and I'd leave at 11.30 at night. And I'd put eight hours in on Saturday and I'd put four hours in on Sunday. Because I wanted to be someone. Because I wanted to apply all this education I had in engineering to make myself better and to do better for my family. Not being a believer, thinking I was. But this idea of just so many things pulling at us. One thing's for sure, we all have the same amount of time. We have 24 hours in a day. We have seven days in a week. We have no more, we have no less. So these things that encumbrance us, these things that hinder us or prevent us from doing something, and that something is looking unto Christ. So not only does it say these encumbrances, but let's stop for we go on further and look at one small word that I believe is overlooked when we look at this passage. We read through it quickly. It says, lay aside every. It's such a small word with such a large scope. To lay aside every. That is every single encumbrance or weight. It's all inclusive. It's not to lay aside some. You know, I'm reading my Bible for 30 minutes a day. I'm going to lay aside a few things so then I can read my Bible for an hour. But it's to lay aside all these things. Every single one of them, and we only know them by the Holy Spirit of God revealing them to us. But it goes on to say, not only that, but lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The word sin is act contrary to the will of God or to the law of God. 
Sin has become a word that we're far too comfortable with. Whether it's camouflaged by our fleshly excuses or it's by our cultural type environment. See, sin's still sin. It's the same sin when Moses wrote the Ten Commandments. It's the same sin today. We know there's an Old Testament and New Testament, an Old Covenant and New Covenant, but it doesn't change what sin is. We look at what Genesis 4, 7 says, the Lord speaking to Cain, he says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire for you, but you must master it. I've tried to put this verse to memory because I want to remind myself that I am responsible for my own sin. Now, does Christ free me from sin? Has Christ delivered me? Is there, therefore, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus? Romans 8, 1, yes. But sin is still around. Even for those of us that have been born again. For those of us that are in Christ, sin still stands at the door many days. So how do we lay it aside? How do we watch out for it? It says the sin that so easily entangles us. It's not a difficult thing. Sin doesn't have any struggles once we let it in, once we give it a foothold in our life. It doesn't have any trouble at all entangling us. It doesn't have any trouble at all ensnaring us. The Bible says that there's pleasure in sin for a season. It's not like the old medicine, and I'm way older than most of you, so your faces are not going to light up, but it's not like paragaric. If you don't know what that is, when I was a kid, that was a medicine they gave you if you had a bad stomach ache. And when my first engineering job was in Greenville, Mississippi, and my son was sick, and so I went to the doctor and requested some paragaric, and I got it. I carried it home. My son was slapping a spoon away. He was about four or five, and finally I'm going to show him how to take a teaspoon of paragaric. Just pour it in there and just put it in. After that, we threw the bottle away, and I never treated him with it again. It's just like those things that entangle us, those things that ensnare us, they're pleasurable. We do them because we enjoy them. We do them because they please our flesh. It's not like a bad dose of medicine. The word entangle means easily surrounding or encompassing, easily besetting. You think about this whole idea of running the marathon of runners. We talked about those that go to a race. The, we just had the St. Jude Marathon up there and some win and some posted pictures, people I know on Facebook. And I didn't see anyone in a pair of large baggy carpenter pants and work boots. I didn't see anyone in a bathrobe. You know, because they're fixing to go a long distance in a pretty enduring run, so they've dressed for the situation. They've taken away anything that entangles them. They've taken away any obstacles that's going to slow them down or be a hindrance to them. So it is to be for us in our race. So it is to be for us when we run. The author goes on to write, and to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Word endurance there, the same root word is patience. But it's actually patience associated with hope. So let us run patiently with hope, the race that is set before us. Philippians 3, 10 through 14 says this. Paul writes to those in Philippi, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. 
not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ, Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's pressing on. It's moving forward. When incidents happen in our life, when things come into our life, when sin entangles us, going backwards is no help at all. That's why the author of Hebrews is saying, look at this great cloud of witnesses. How did they live? It says, then let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It is a forward direction to Christian life. We only hinder ourselves when we go backwards. We only hinder ourselves when we think about those things that are sitting behind us. Think about what Jesus said. He said, any man puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not fit for the kingdom of God. There's nothing behind us in our lives worth going back for. If sanctification is the true process of ongoing conforming us to the image of Christ, then what is there back there that we want to revisit? Hebrews goes on to say in verse 2, centering upon Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who of the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Some translations saying looking unto Jesus. The word fixing there says to look away steadfastly or intently towards a distant object. Metaphorically speaking, to behold in the mind, to fix the mind upon. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Sort of like Peter when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Will you two go away? And he said, Where else will we go? What else can we look at that will get us to where we need to be? What else can we set our eyes upon apart from Christ that will really move us forward in this race towards becoming more godly and more holy? Matthew 6.33 states that this, Jesus speaking, But seek first the his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Is that not the course of the race set out before us? It does not tell us in the scriptures, both in Leviticus and in the New Testament, to be holy for I am holy. Colossians 3, verse 2 and 3 talks about fixing our mind upon this. It says, set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above. When we think about that, there's two things I believe that come to our mind. First of all, what all is above? We know Christ is above, the right hand of the Father. We know the Father is above. But setting our mind on things above. There's so much more there than just to say God in the middle, Jesus to the right. There's so much there in the greatness and the goodness of God of looking at the attributes of God. Looking at who he is and what he's done for us and what he's called us to be. But also when we set our mind on things above, 
It helps us to think about what it is that we're really called and saved and born again and regenerated, whatever word you want to slide in the slot, to be. See, if we're not setting our mind on things above, then we're worrying about on the things below. Now, I don't know everyone here as well as I should, but I know this, I'm probably, where Paul said I'm the chief of sinners, I probably could make the statement and not feel one ounce unjust about it to say I'm the chief of warriors. Like, things just bother me. Incidents happen at my job that I don't make people happy, and we've had some talk about it one day. It's a miserable next time do I get back and get that made right. Things are not happening in the way people want them done. In other places, it concerns me. Just to be so focused on these temporal things is not helpful. It's not healthy. It's not biblical. So he goes on to say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the author, the originator, it all begins with him. The perfecter, he brings it to completion. It's God who initiates our salvation, it'll be God who brings it to completion. Are you required to live holy lives? Are you required to turn away from sin? Are you required to set your mind on things above? Yes. But apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, there'll be no sanctification. He knows just what to give us. He knows just when to give it to us. He knows just how to turn our hearts and our minds when they're not set upon the right things. He knows what things bring us about to look back to him. That's one of the greatest things about God. Even, even in my wayward thinking or my wayward mind or my wayward actions, God loves me enough that he's going to do what it takes. That's what the author of Hebrews can go on to write. talks about that he scourges, he disciplines every son, he brings it about. He knows what it takes to conform you to the image of his son. And he will do those things. He will do those things because what a great God he is. He'll do those things for what a great love he has for us. Philippians 1, 6 says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever to hold his priesthood permanently, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is a forever thing. This is an eternal thing work being done in your life upon to, to the day of Christ. Goes on to say in verse 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We think of Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, that Christ humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. That Christ's whole purpose of coming was to die, to give his life a ransom for many. He came to seek and save that which is lost, the scripture says. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Peter 3.22, I won't read it, but it tells us that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. There, at his rightful place, always to make intercession for us. Not only is this marathon centered upon Christ, but it's also we need to consider the cost. And verse 3 goes on to say, For consider him who has endured such hostility by the sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
We talked about this beginning, long distance runners train. They have to train harshly, they have to give up time, they have to give up endurance. If you're gonna run a three mile run, you might wanna practice with a four mile run. But you better start out with about a 100 yard run or you'll be like me over here on the bike trail. This idea of training, getting to the physical limits of necessary, you have to consider the cost, don't we? I mean, for me to show up this past year at the marathon, the St. Jude Marathon, the only thing I would do that would be wise is to have Bambi Petty sitting beside me so when I go down, at least I'd have a doctor near, you know? Just the whole idea of not being prepared, not to be in shape for something like that, that we have to consider the Christian life. Do you have to get in shape for it? No, you'll be put in shape by Christ. Do we have to work out and get better? Do we have to one day get good enough before we can come to Christ? Well, no. Christ came to save sinners. The only thing you have to do to be qualified for the Lord to save you is just be a sinner. It's what we all do best. He said, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. To consider means to think out carefully to meditate on, to look at, to look to Christ. John 15, 18 through 19 states it this way. The world hates you. You know that it has hated me, Jesus speaking, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. To endure hostilities. Colossians 1, states this. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, Paul writing, in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, talking about Christ, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The scripture tells us all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. My measurement of how godly I'm desiring to live I usually measure that about how much persecution I'm really going through. I find it to be little. It goes on to say in the latter part of three, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. To be weary, fatigued, to be ill, to die is what grow, grow weary means, so you will not get there. And to lose heart means fainting in your souls. So why are we considering him that endured all these hostilities? Why are we surrounded with such great a cloud of witnesses? Why do we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we won't grow weary? We live in a busy world, and maybe you've perfected the art of doing just enough and then resting. I don't know who that would be. I've never met that person. We fill our calendars up. We overload our schedules, some in the great name of doing it for the Lord. But we need to stop and to look and to consider all that Christ has done, all that Christ has given, all that's available in Christ. Why are we not to grow weary? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Galatians 6, 9 tells us, let us not lose heart, same phrase, in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. If we're not refreshed 
not just daily, but I believe there has to come a point in time if you're really busy to refresh yourself for a length of time. I know right now someone's interjecting, do you practice what you preach? And I would say at this point, no. Finding time just to be still and know that I am God. Making a way where it's okay to tell children and grandchildren, it's okay to tell spouses that I, I just need to spend some time with the Lord. There's no way to fix our eyes upon Jesus if we're not having time in prayer and the Word. And I'm not talking about just the prayer time of, here's all my needs, God, can you meet them? But the prayer time of crying out to the Lord and asking God to help you, to help you step away from these encumbrances that so easily entangle us. To help us overcome these sins that seem to be repetitive. To help us treasure Christ above all things else. What's the application here? For the believer, I believe 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 makes a great application understanding this passage. Paul writes to those in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says he disciplines his body. I don't think that means exercise. Maybe in some form. Maybe we should be in better shape that we can endure more. I haven't read it directly for myself as I was told at one time that Jonathan Edwards so developed a diet in such a way by practicing with food that what he could eat that would allow his body at night to recoup faster that he could have less time to sleep, more time to be in the Word, more time to spend with God. So for the believer, we've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Peter says that. We've not been given part of Christ, and then if we do good on earth, we earn some more of Christ. We've been given all of Christ. We've given total access to all that God has for us in Christ Jesus, that he seated us in him in the heavenlies. So maybe we just need to start running. Maybe we need to just take what God has given us and press on hard towards the higher calling. For the unbeliever tonight, I believe it's some of the same urging. I'd say for the unbeliever to look at verse 3, maybe not all in context, but consider him. Consider him who suffered. The word considered, I said, is to reason with careful deliberation. Consider accurately and distinctly. Again and again, returning back to the same thing, to consider it. I know... Some will say, I've considered Christ. But have you really considered Christ or have you just glanced his way? Have you really considered Christ and all that he is or have you just thought about, well, maybe one day I ought to do that? 
Have you truly considered Christ and what he's given to everyone that will come to him? Or have you just looked at others and made excuses for why you won't consider Christ? If you consider him strongly, then run. You cannot run in a race that you're not part of, that you're not registered in, that you're not on the charted course. I have a treadmill at home. It's not worth a lot, but I got it just in case I could get more exercise in the winter and try and keep my health up because I work long in the summers. But you know, I've been on that treadmill a few times and it really never takes you anywhere. Unbeliever, that's what you're on. You're on your own self-centered, self-exalting treadmill. You're not looking to Christ, you're looking to self. You're not running, you're just in the same place you were yesterday. Far and distant from the very one God that loves you enough to send his only begotten son. So run to Christ. Doing what it says in verse 2, fixing your eyes, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of the faith you can have. The only thing that keeps you, because I think about in closing what the Ethiopian eunuch said to Philip about baptism, he said, here's water, what hinders me? So we're not taking that out of context and accurately, but I will reward it for those that are you that are far from him. Here's Christ. What hinders you from coming to him? Here's Christ who's offered himself freely. What hinders you from coming to him? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. Lord, in our own time, we too once were far from you. And Lord, by your great grace that you've wooed us and brought us near, and that you've saved us, that you've taken us out of the dominion of darkness and put us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. So God, would you do others? Father, has Christ not bought more? So God, we ask you tonight, not only for those that are far from you that you would save souls, but God, for those of us who find it hard to lay aside these encumbrances, Lord, that maybe are even blinded to own areas of our life that we invest too much in, whether it's job or family. Lord, you did tell us to seek first the kingdom. Father, we pray now, God, that we would take these words, Lord, they're your words from your book. God, that we'd be strengthened and encouraged, Lord, that we would press on. Lord, that we would look to you and all that you endured so we do not grow weary. Father, we praise you and we thank you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.